Hello and welcome to The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. At five in the morning Ukraine time on the 24th of February 2022, the Kremlin announced a special military operation. Vladimir Putin's troops were invading Ukraine or, as we will see, invading more of Ukraine because the Russian-Ukraine conflict has very long roots. We're all familiar, too familiar, with the human cost of what has become the desperate struggle to repel Putin's aggression. But if we want the war to end, we also have to confront the way in which it began. Our guest today has done precisely that. He is Michael Kimmage, formerly with the US State Department, a diplomat, scholar and author of a new book, Collisions, The Origins of the War in Ukraine and the New Global Instability. As the title suggests, that instability affects us all. Welcome to The Bunker, Michael. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin with how we can begin to understand this conflict, because as I suggested, it has very, very long roots and 2022 was not the beginning. Where do you think we should go back to? I think it's fair to go back to the 1990s, to go back that far uh, and to acknowledge that even under Boris Yeltsin, you know, before Vladimir Putin, there was quite a bit of Russian discontent with where they ended up after the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, and then in 2014, 2013, 2014, when there's a real revolution in Ukraine uh, that puts the country very much on a Europeanizing course, uh, Russia responds with violence, uh, annexing Crimea uh, and infiltrating its soldiers into eastern Ukraine uh, or the Donbass. Uh, and, you know, really since then, what you've seen is a kind of steady escalation under the surface for quite a while, uh, not easily visible, but certainly by 2021, when there's a massive buildup around Ukraine by Russia uh, and uh, an effort to extort certain concessions from Ukraine and the West, which was unsuccessful, uh, you see a really rapid escalation on the Russian side. Uh, and then, of course, as you mentioned, in February 2022, the decision in favor of a massive war. Looking at it from the Russian point of view, then, just for, just for a moment, there was a legitimate fear that essentially what had happened at the end of the Cold War was that the border with NATO had moved right up to Russia and it was something that was uh, potentially very aggressive. Should it also happen to Ukraine? You know, that's a framing that you'll certainly hear from Putin. Uh, and it's not an uncommon argument in Russia. So it's one that deserves to be taken seriously to that degree. Uh, it does seem to me quite hyperbolic. Uh, that uh, the expansion of NATO into the Baltic republics in 2004 uh, did not result in any catastrophic downturn in U.S.-Russian relations or West-Russia relations at the time. You had actually a fairly high degree of cooperation. Only two years before, in 2002, Vladimir Putin speculated about Russia joining NATO. So it was a different world then. Perhaps you could say, this is maybe to give the most credence uh, possible to the Russian side of the argument, that the expansion of NATO contributed to something of a zero-sum logic, that it was binary, it's sort of us, them, and that was risky. Uh, and, you know, for that, I think we've all paid something uh, of a price. But I would, with emphasis, say that NATO's expansion has very little to do with the 2022 invasion. I think there are many other sources of that, and they're located much more within Russia itself uh, and in Russia's relationship uh, to Ukraine. So I think the NATO debate, while interesting and important, is a bit of a red herring. Where is this then? Uh, we can talk a little bit about the state of the war right now. But what do you think was Putin's original aim? Was it simply that uh, Ukraine would turn over? I mean, I've talked to people in defence and intelligence circles in Britain, and they told me that there was a lot of bribery went on in Ukraine, that it was just going to turn over very, very quickly because so many officials had been bribed. And then he discovered that some of the people stealing the money were actually working for him in the, uh, in the Russian security service. 
well, I think that the only way that the war can be understood uh, is uh, with a very high degree of war optimism beforehand, uh, and that Putin overestimated the power of the Russian military, and probably more consequentially, he underestimated the will to fight uh, in Ukraine. And indeed, there were all kinds of efforts to infiltrate and buy off Ukrainians, which had the war gone better for Russia, might have borne fruit, but didn't uh, didn't pan out. I think that the initial war aim uh, was not to overtake all of the country. It was to topple the government uh, and probably the partition of the country. And we've seen Russian gestures in this direction. According to the Russian constitution, there are four provinces of Ukraine that are actually Russia, uh, even though Russia doesn't control the territory uh, in all of those provinces. So, you know, in a sense, Russia is still trying to do what it was attempting on the eve of the uh, invasion. I think Russia clearly thought, Putin thought that it would be a quick victory. War. And I think finally, I think Putin thought that this would create great problems between the United States and Russia, but that if it would be a quick war, a fait accompli, that uh, Russia could pick off various countries in Europe method. So I think the war optimism extended beyond Ukraine to some sense that Putin with this war could shatter the transatlantic relationship. Now, I know that um, comparisons with another dictator of sorts, Hitler, are, are commonplace. But what we saw in the 1930s was that Germany took uh, marched into the Ruhr and everything was okay. And then it had Anschluss with Austria, took a bigger bite, and then Czechoslovakia. We know, we know the story. Eventually Poland and then World War II. I mean, do you see this as being replicated in one sense with Putin? He keeps pushing and pushing and pushing just until finally someone, NATO, Americans, draw a line. I think it's a fair analogy. I think that the caveat we could start there is that Nazi Germany or Germany in the 1930s was a vastly more powerful country, relatively speaking, than Russia is uh, today. So Russia's capacity to march beyond Ukraine, certainly at the present moment, but even in 2022, uh, is quite limited, whereas you know Germany had very, very formidable uh, capacity. You know, The will to perpetrate something like the Holocaust, terrible as what Russia is doing in Ukraine, uh, is also somewhat particular or unique to, to, to Nazi Germany. So there are ways in which one has to be careful with the uh, analogy. But exactly what you lay out, I think, is very relevant. There was probing, there was testing, there was the sense that there's no border to Russia. There are these grievances about Russian or so-called Russian populations outside of Russian borders. That's very similar to how Hitler approached the question of Danzig in the 1930s or the Sudeten uh, Germans in, in Czechoslovakia. He exploited those situations to create a pretext for annexation or for territorial conquest. Uh, and indeed, the whole dynamic of appeasement, uh, which we <laughs> had made central to sort of historical memory and to foreign policy for many years after 1938, uh, it does replicate itself after 2014. The West set certain conditions for Russia after the annexation of Crimea and incursion into eastern Ukraine, and then was very lighthearted and forgetful and, in a sense, weak about uh, following through on those conditions. And that does bring us back uh, to the late 1930s. And I think Putin responded, you could say, in this regard, as Hitler responded to appeasement in the late 1930s. So the analogy holds, I would say half of the analogy really holds. Part of your book is to talk about global instability. So what are the lessons that we can begin to learn about this now? I think one is the pivotal place of Ukraine globally. The Black Sea has become a very important theater of conflict, and it's one in which uh, Ukraine is actually doing quite well. Uh, in the last few months, we've seen huge progress in the naval side of the war uh, for Ukraine, and that has uh, made the Black Sea a very difficult place for Russia 
to operate, uh, and that affects uh, certain Russian positions in uh, the Middle East and also affects uh, global trade. Ukraine is one of the world's major grain producers, as is Russia for that matter. Uh, And so as goes the war, as goes Ukrainian access to the Black Sea and to the Mediterranean, so go global food prices. Uh, And that can affect stability or instability in the Middle East and Africa uh, and elsewhere. That's been one of the war's really remarkable global ripple effects. And in a sense, inflation as well, I mean, this would be true probably for any conflict of this scale, regardless of where it would uh, be, but inflation has been affected by the war and that touches the life of everyday American citizens or everyday peoples uh, of Europe uh, and elsewhere. More importantly, I think this is the point that matters most in terms of global instability. Russia has radicalized its foreign policy. This probably occurred before 2022. It's been a gradual process with Putin and with the Kremlin, but it's definitely been highly visible and very significant after the invasion. So arms control now is non-existent. There's no arms control going on between the United States uh, and Russia. That doesn't mean that there's going to be nuclear war tomorrow or some major conflict, but it is a huge transition and it's making the world uh, a more dangerous place. Russia is also seeking pressure points for Europe, for the United States, where they can be found. And so Russia's position in the Middle East is much more radical than it would have been five years ago. The connections to the Houthis, the connections to Hamas, the enabling of uh, Iran as itself a radical actor in the Middle East. All of this is to a much greater degree because of the war. You know, before the war, Russia was hedging in a lot of in a lot of places, and now it's no, no longer doing so. Uh, and in that sense, it's not as if Russia is able to instigate instability everywhere uh, or is even the prime mover of instability in the Middle East, but it can augment it and it is augmenting it. Uh, and that's having an effect on crises the world over. That also takes us on to the question of lack of a mediator when members of the Security Council, permanent members of the Security Council, are involved either directly or indirectly as allies of the people who are doing the fighting. I mean, this is very difficult. There's nobody, in other words, that you can pick up a phone and ring and say, can you help us sort this out? That's absolutely correct. I mean, the U.S., And the countries of NATO, the European countries of NATO, are not direct combatants in the war, but they're definitely parties to the the conflict because they deeply support Ukraine. Uh, China is not in a position to mediate because China, although it's not providing direct military assistance to Russia, uh, has supported the Russian argument that this is a war about NATO expansion and China is providing lots of economic outlets uh, for Russia. The United Nations is, I don't want to say useless, I think there are humanitarian missions that it can have in and around Ukraine. Uh, but it too cannot mediate because you know, Russia is within the Security Council and is going to use the UN as it has to pursue its wartime interests. And I can't think of any other combination of powers. I mean, one could imagine perhaps Brazil, South Africa, India, Turkey is, if there is a country that could do a mediation uh, here, perhaps it would be Turkey, uh, but very difficult for, I think, a medium power to intervene in a conflict that's being uh, fought out by not just two, but really by several uh, great powers. So yes, mediation, if it comes, is probably going to have to happen between Ukraine and Russia, which I think could occur, but it will be years from uh, today. There's really no, there's no structure there. There's no uh, set of powers that can that can iron this out. I was going to add, add, though, that if you were in the leadership of India, or in the leadership in China, and looking at the way Russia has performed, you might have second thoughts about this as being some kind of ally or some power that you could use. Completely. I don't think that there's any way in which this war, outside of probably even a relatively small group in Russia, is seen as something admirable, just, and worthwhile. Uh, There are lots of global debates about hypocrisy, whether what Russia does is what a lot of other countries do, 
But I don't think that China or India or any other country outside of Russia, uh, to my knowledge, thinks that this was a wise move on Russia's part, that this was well executed. And, you know, if you would be China trying to imitate Russia in this case, my guess is that the evidence from the war in Ukraine would make you think twice about any kind of invasion of, of Taiwan, which is, after all, an island and probably logistically much more difficult to invade than Ukraine. So that is to the good. Uh, there's a way in which this war is cautionary. Not that the, the war itself brings anything good to the world, but that's probably uh, a marginal benefit that's coming from the war. Did we learn anything about where this war might go or how we should judge Putin from the rather bizarre interview Tucker Carlson, if we could call it an interview, um, uh, when, when he listened a lot to uh, Vladimir Putin? Did we learn anything from that? Not really. I think Putin has said all of this stuff before at similar length and sometimes even longer than the answers he gave to, to Tucker Carlson. So uh, in, in some ways, uh, I don't think that Putin showed himself to be a very effective communicator, uh, which is worth noting. The civilizational historical programs that Putin has come up with for this war are important. And he brought them forward to a great degree with Tucker Carlson, probably to an American audience, at least, that has no idea what Putin is uh, is talking about. But this is a clue to how Putin thinks of the world. And, you know, I think that the interview drives home a lesson that we need to learn from this war uh, and from Putin's messaging about it and from the Russian population, which is that Russia is probably in this for the long haul, uh, that there is no uh, concession that Russia is prepared to make. There was no indication that negotiation of a sincere or genuine kind was in the offing from Putin. Uh, this is what Russia is. That, that's what Putin was really saying, that what Russia is, is the country that's fighting this war. There's no distinction. There's no separation. And to be a patriotic Russian is by definition to pro-war. As long as Putin is in power, I think that that's the message he's going to project. Uh, it tells us that the war is going to be quite long, I think. How about us? Are we in it for the long haul? And by we, I mean you know, Western powers. And obviously, when there's a British general election, an American general election, uh, presidential election, and a, a Trump presidency could, tra- could change things dramatically, presumably. Well, is the glass half full or half empty? Like Being something of an optimist by nature, I'll conclude by saying it's a little bit more than half half full. Uh, We're now two years into the war. Uh, It's been very costly, hundreds of billions of dollars for the supporters uh, of uh, of Ukraine. And Ukraine is fighting a adversary uh, that is on paper far superior uh, to Ukraine, a bigger population, a bigger economy, a more sophisticated military. So under those difficult circumstances, what you've seen is a very continuous level of support for Ukraine, certainly a high level of motivation in Ukraine itself. And The interesting stories are often fissures in the transatlantic coalition behind Ukraine, but we've seen a lot of stories. Germany has, you know, recently uh, really increased the amount of aid that it's giving to Ukraine. Uh, The United Kingdom has made a 10-year commitment to Ukraine's security and defense. And it seems to me like there's a high degree of consensus in Britain uh, about supporting Ukraine. And that's a story that you can see across Europe and to a degree uh, in the United States. It would be a valid story for the White House, which is unwavering in its support for Uh, Ukraine and will remain so uh, for as long as Biden uh, is uh, in office. That's a very important story to tell. That's two years of support with many sides. This support is going to be continuous and that the quality of weaponry being given to Ukraine is increasing over time. More and more and more and more sophisticated weapons flowing toward Ukraine. Very important to tell that story at the present moment because it's not the obvious story, but it's, it's a true story. Is it half empty? In the city of Washington, D.C., the Ukrainian flags have disappeared. In the news media, Ukraine is now kind of a second tier or a third tier 
uh, story. Uh, and in the United States, of course, as we all know, you know, there's a huge dilemma about giving aid to Ukraine. President Trump, former President Trump, is the front runner in the election. Uh, he's no friend of Ukraine, uh, and he continues to suggest that this conflict could be ended quickly, and that American support for Ukraine is somehow unseemly or uh, unnecessary. And if you go across the Western European landscape, at least, you'll see that there are similar initiatives, agendas, the rise of the AFD in Germany, uh, and other sort of skeptical parties. You can look in, and find this in Italy, in France, uh, Austria, many other uh, many other places. So that's the way in which the glass is half empty. Uh, but I do think that on balance in the United States, there's still a majority support for Ukraine. Uh, and when push comes to shove, every time that the war goes back in the headlines, Russia will do something to bring it forward and remind people of the enormous civilian costs in Ukraine. And that in turn uh, generates political and military support. And is that true of a Trump presidency? And I know you, I know you don't know, and I don't know. I suspect that right. uh, we, uh, perhaps Mr. Trump doesn't know. I, you know, I think, uh, and again, this may be a, a little bit over optimistic in terms of the U.S. commitment to Ukraine. If we use the evidence not of Trump on the campaign trail, which we know from 2016 is a very dubious kind of evidence because he says many things and it's often contradictory. In the four years that Trump was president, the level of U.S. military spending related to Europe went up. Two new countries entered the NATO alliance, and Trump made the decision, which Obama didn't before him, to provide Ukraine with lethal military assistance. These were the Javelin anti-tank missiles. I don't think that this would be repeated. I think a second Trump term might be much more radically anti-European, anti-NATO, anti-Ukraine than the first term was if Trump gets it. On the other hand, I would be very careful to make too many judgments from the things that Trump says. What he did as a president, the kind of president Trump was in foreign policy, he was a fairly conventional Republican president in his actions and deeply unconventional in his words. Well, during the course of our conversation, you've managed to explain a very difficult geopolitical problem and also quite a few things about Donald Trump in a very interesting way. Uh, can I just pick up one point, which is, you know, this is an anecdote, but uh, in the last couple of weeks, I happened to be in Florida. I had a number of conversations with people with with folk there, including about uh, uh, the Ukraine war. And a couple of them said to me, yeah, but Ukraine was always part of Russia. I don't know why we're bothered. I mean, is that why actually a book like yours is so important? Because it it, it may set a, a historical context which defines the way in which people think of a conflict, which if you're in Florida, obviously is going to seem a very, very long away from your principal concerns. I think that that's very true, that um, before 2022, Americans in Ukraine, unless people had heritage from that part of, uh, of Europe, level of knowledge was very low. Uh, what people did immediately after the invasion, I think, was respond to the images of the war. Uh, and there was, as there was throughout Europe, a lot of empathy for just the normal people of Ukraine, the children, the the, the civilians who are suffering under the uh, under the attack. And I think you know, this kind of wave of political and military support followed in some ways from those images. What I think is still dimly understood in this country uh, is the very complicated dynamics between Ukraine and Russia. The whole story of Ukraine's national movement and national independence is a complicated one uh, and a difficult one uh, to tell, but a necessary one to understand why Ukrainians are fighting, why the stakes are so high uh, for Ukraine, and in a sense, why Ukraine is unwilling to yield what they're not willing to do is to bargain away their nationhood. And so it is very important to understand the historical roots for that uh, and the historical context. Otherwise, I would argue that it's very difficult to understand the war. 
Could we end with with two scenarios, the malign and the benign, beginning with the malign scenario, which is in some way Ukraine collapses, Putin gets more or less what he wants. He's not going to stop there, I take it, you think, do you? I mean, are the Baltics next? Because certainly what people in Lithuania and elsewhere seem to think. I don't think that the Baltics are next. I don't think that any NATO member is next in the sense of invasion. I think one of the things about this is to go back to our earlier conversation about NATO expansion. I think it is true that Russia fears NATO uh, and it would be a huge step. And they've performed so badly militarily in Ukraine that if they were have if they had to face uh, NATO armies, you know, it's, it's possible that it could be catastrophic for Russia. But I do think that the malign scenario is still extremely worrisome because I think what Russia would do is exploit the fear that a successful invasion of Ukraine would uh, would generate uh, to divide and conquer. Because you would have countries like Slovakia and Hungary, which would say, well, the Russians are surging forward. Let's make a separate peace with Russia. And then you would have Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia that would have the exact opposite response, that we need to double down and build up our military resources and assets. And that would be something very weakening both for Europe as such and for the transatlantic relationship. And so I think it's not so much that there's a scenario of sequential invasions where Russia marches to Berlin or to Paris. They just don't have the capacity. And I think that they also don't have the intent but they would use their victory to destabilize Europe uh, and to cause all kinds of problems uh, from within. That's really Russia's expertise. And its victory in Ukraine would be a massive and incredibly disturbing step forward in that uh, in that project. The benign scenario. I mean, the benign scenario would be that the war ends tomorrow, but it won't. But uh, what is realistic? How could it? How could it be stopped? Two lines of effort uh, that are crucial to. Ukrainian and Western success. One is out of our control, but something that we have to keep thinking of, which is uh, the possibility of political problems for Putin. We got a foretaste of that in June of last year with the Prigozhin mutiny, uh, which took you know <laughs> rebelling Russian soldiers to a, country, a couple of hundred kilometers from uh, from Moscow. And politics, in the same way that it's returning to Ukraine now, is not going to be absent from Russia forever. Putin is juggling a lot of different balls, economic, military, and political, uh, and he may well fail uh, internally. If he starts to, if Russia starts to become a more difficult country to govern, its role in Ukraine is going to diminish uh, and its ability to prosecute the war is going to become much, much weaker. So that's not something that we can generate, that we can cause, but we shouldn't forget that that's possible. Uh, And when we worry about our own degree of commitment, when we worry about the disposition of Ukrainian forces and how the war is going, we have to remind ourselves that Russia is one of the variables in the war uh, and things could start to go badly for uh, Russia. Secondly, I think what has to be done is a very credible commitment to containing Russian military power in Ukraine. Uh, I don't think the benchmark has to be categorical. Either we get all the territory back or we lose. Uh, I think that we can do a lot to push back the sort of Russian military presence in Ukraine. In a sense, we've done that already over the course of the last uh, year and a half. And one can be just very resolute uh, with that uh, in mind. I think there's no rush to a solution. It's going to be a messy situation for a long time to come. My guess is Russia is going to keep on pushing in terms of trying to control Ukraine. And so the question is how effectively, efficiently and intelligently uh, we can push back. But here, since we've used the word benign, it's very important to register the many successes that have already been achieved in this project. The Russians are not in Kiev. Russians are not on the verge of taking any major Ukrainian city. That is a foundation on which Ukraine and the West can build. uh, And that I think should be the kind of strategic orientation going forward. 
Michael, thank you very much for your insights, for your wisdom, and for a little bit of good cheer at the end. And you can pre-order Michael's upcoming book, Collisions, The Origins of the War in Ukraine and the New Global Instability through our affiliate bookshop, and you'll help fund the bunker by earning us a small commission for every sale. Bookshop.org's fees help support independent bookshops too. Also, if you don't already back us on Patreon, why not join today? For just £3 a month, you'll get all of our episodes first, ad-free, and access to our exclusive merchandise. This is The Bunker. I'm Gavin Esler. Thank you for listening. The Bunker was written and presented by Gavin Esler. Produced by Chris Jones and edited by Robin Lieber. Our music is by Kenny Dickinson, art by Jim Parrott, and The Bunker is a podcast. Thank you.